Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. If you have your Bibles there, feel free to open it up and check it out. And here it is. This is the, the little passage that we'll be talking about. So I'll read it out. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean? Do you ever get to the end of a passage of scripture and just kind of go like, I don't really know what I just read. Like, it happens to me. Yeah, it happens to, you, it happens to me all the time. Uh, you can sit there and you're like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read three chapters and you kind of get through the first one. You're like, yeah, I did it. And then you think and you're like, oh, i got no idea what I just read. I remember the first bit, but in the middle there somewhere I zoned out and it just didn't sink in at all. You're not, you don't really comprehend what's being said because for a whole bunch of reasons I think this is. Because the, the Bible is multi-layered and it's very deep and intense in a lot of areas. Also because, you know, generally people are doing less and less reading and so we're becoming less capable of comprehending stuff. Which is why I think it's more important and why us as a church focus on this exegetical teaching, this teaching through the Bible, getting into the depths and the meat of stuff and explaining it and, and working it out together. So there's a lot to take on with this passage, a lot, lot to take in, a lot to kind of work out what's going. But overall, overall, the writer is encouraging people. You can see it there in uh, the, the second paragraph, at the end of the second paragraph. It's a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This is an encouragement to us. And there's three areas uh, that we can be encouraged through this passage. And they're the three main points that I want to talk about today. So firstly, let's take a look at the first few verses. The first few verses say, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. I want to focus on that last sentence there. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So obviously the writer of this letter was writing to people who knew who Abraham was. And you might be sitting here going, I've got no idea who Abraham is. Which Abraham is this? Is, there, is this an Abraham that was around at these times or who is, who is actually being referred to here? The Hebrews, who the writer was writing to, were people that had been brought up learning their history and their heritage through the records of the people, which is the Old Testament. So to make a reference like this about Abraham, well, they understood what was going on. But it could be kind of vague to us. So you might be asking, who is Abraham? What did God promise him? And how did Abraham patiently wait for it? So even though it's a fairly well-known story, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Abraham and the promise that was made to him because when I was looking into it, it just stood out to me as being a lot much, a, a bigger deal than I ever gave it credit for in the past. So let's check out the story of Abraham. We find the historical account of Abraham's life uh, in Genesis. So I've grabbed a whole bunch of pertinent verses from uh, Genesis 11 on and kind of stuck them all together to form a basic story of the promise that God gave to Abraham. 
And here is the first little one. We're talking about God's uh, promise to Abraham and Abraham's patience in waiting for it. So, the first thing we need to know about Abraham is that Abraham was married to a woman named Sarai. And in Genesis 11.30, it says, Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Sarai is Abraham's wife. And you might know her as Sarah, if you know the story. And you'll notice later on, as we see more of this, that Abraham is referred to as Abram. And basically, that was their names before God changed their names. God gave them new names when he made the promise to them and changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Okay, so... Hopefully that's not too confusing. And the important thing here from, uh, from 11.30 is that Sarah is barren. She can't have kids. Now, in Genesis 12.1, it says, by the way, we're going to be doing a lot of Bible reading today. These are all interesting stories. So just treat it like storytelling time and hopefully you enjoy it. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So let's set the scene. God has chosen Abram or Abraham as a guy who is really godly. And he's chosen him as someone through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the first kind of hint at the promise that God is giving to Abraham. We don't know fully what the promise is going to be yet, but that's, that's the first bit that we've got. We're not quite sure how far this promise is going to be extended, but it's alluded to. And, importantly, Abraham's 75 years old. Anyone over 75 in here? A couple people? No? 75? I mean, 75 is... That's, that's kind of old, you know? You're doing pretty well at 75, you know? Like, I mean, back then, people lived longer, as you will see. But 75 is... I'm 27, so, you know, I've got no concept of, of 75. That's crazy. So, a few chapters later, we hear a little bit more of this promise and what's going on. <clears throat> Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So it's not completely clear here exactly when this was in relation to the first time that God spoke to Abram about his little promise. Okay? But it's become clearer now that what God's promise actually is in the way in which he's planning to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham is by setting him up as a patriarch, the father of a people. God says to Abraham that he will have countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, and it shall be through his own son. Let's not forget the fact that Abraham is old. His wife is 10 years younger than him. So if, she's, if he's 75, if this is right after the first bit, then she's 65. And she can't have kids. Let's keep going. 
Genesis 16.1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, first thing that I notice about this is this is ten years later. This is ten years after they've moved to Canaan. So Abram's been living, living in Canaan for ten years. He, we can now kind of work out he must be 85 and Sarah's 75. And God promised ten years ago that he would, have, he would be the father of multitudes. And they've been waiting for ten years. Put yourself in that position. That is a long time to wait. How long would you wait if you were given a promise like that? Like how long would you wait before you kind of start going... Was there, was there prayers that I didn't hear? Was there something that's gone wrong here? Was there a messenger that's been delayed or that's been killed and there's something that I didn't find out about? I mean, God told me 10 years ago I was going to have a kid. I'm 85, my wife's 75, she can't have kids. What's going on? You know? He's only getting older. You'd think if he was going to make a promise like you're going to have a kid, you'd do it right then, 75. You know, you wouldn't be waiting longer and longer until it got more and more difficult. So how long would you wait before you're kind of sitting around going, maybe it was just a metaphor, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't literal, maybe I misheard, maybe I misinterpreted. I can, I can kind of imagine Abraham and Sarah sitting up in bed, you know, late at night, Sarah's doing some knitting, <laughs> Abraham's got a Sudoku or something, and you know, they kind of don't talk about the whole promise inheritance thing because it's just gotten a bit awkward and a bit confusing and they just don't talk about it that much and... And then suddenly Sarah has this crazy brainwave and she puts the knitting down and she looks at Abraham and he, he's still doing a Sudoku, he's not really thinking about her. And she says, hold on a second, I think I'm onto something here. God just said it would be your son, right? Yours, not mine. It doesn't have to be my son. He promised to give you a son. And Abraham he puts his Sudoku down, he takes off his reading glasses, he's like, yeah. What's your point? Sarah says, well, why don't you just sleep with someone else? And culturally back then, having more than one, one wife, I mean, that's not unheard of. So Abraham thinks of it for a while and he's like, that could work. Sounds like a good idea. And you can see the mechanisms that are working here, right? Ten years they've waited. You can see the way they're thinking. Ten years after a promise is made, nothing has happened. And so you kind of start thinking, well, maybe it's something that I'm doing wrong. Maybe God wants me to do something. Maybe God doesn't want me to sit around. Maybe I need to get involved here to make sure that this promise happens. And of course, it all makes so much sense. God just said, I would have a son. He didn't say you. And so we start kind of second-guessing and doing these things to make the promises of God happen. And so Abraham does it. He takes Hagar, Sarah's servant, as his wife, and she becomes pregnant. And what happens next? Well, in Genesis 16:5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I, I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, 
Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. That escalated quickly. <laughs> That's like, yeah, we're sitting in bed, we're talking about it, this seems like a good idea. I don't know, a couple of weeks later, geez, <laughs> it's getting messy all of a sudden. Sarah, obviously, maybe she didn't quite think this through that well. You know, She's just thinking, oh, we've got to make something work with the promise. And Abraham probably didn't think it through that well either when he agreed to it. Because Hagar gets pretty arrogant about the fact that she got pregnant from the looks of things, from what we know, possibly, you know, the first time. And Sarah's not happy about that fact at all. And then Abraham, you know, Sarah goes and talks to Abraham, and Abraham doesn't necessarily respond that well. You know, he's kind of taken Hagar as a wife. He's got a kid um, coming with her. And Abraham says, well, she's your servant. You do whatever you want. And Sarah's upset, and she treats her pretty badly, so badly that Hagar runs away. It's a pretty big deal. You're in the wilderness, you're pregnant, you get treated badly, you run away into the wilderness. A few verses later, an, an angel of God spoke to Hagar out in the wilderness in Genesis 16:11. It says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 68 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So here we are. Abram has a son, and Hagar returns to Abram and Sarah, and Abraham is 86 years old. So, fast forward 13 years. Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, Work, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and, you, uh, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Uh, and this is talking about Sarah. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So things kind of haven't improved that much. Okay, 13 years ago, Abraham had a kid and it turned out that wasn't what God had intended. So we had 10 years and then they kind of came up with a solution and now it's been another 13 years. Abraham has been kicking around, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled and finally when he's 99 years old, God says, it's going to be your son and moreover, it's going to be Sarah's son as well. And by this point, I think probably understandably a little bit, Abraham's kind of having a bit of trouble believing it or at least he's a bit confused by it. It seems like a little bit of a comical idea and he's not the only one who thinks it's kind of funny because in Genesis 18.10, we see this, the Lord said, I will surely return to you uh, about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did. I like that. He's very serious. I got you. You know, you can't hide. 
So there we have it, the final promise, and now finally God has put a timeline in place. 25 years ago, first promise happened, no timeline. Now, if you were to get this promise, if you were to get this promise, you're going to have a kid, do you think that your, your initial response would be in 25 years as the timeline? No one's thinking that. Who's thinking that? But now, finally, we have a timeline. And a lot of the time, I think a lot of the time, we do impose our own timelines onto God. God doesn't see time the way that we see time, and he doesn't experience it the way we experience it. And a lot of the time, we might, we might uh, receive a promise from God. We might get a feeling that God wants to do something. God is leading us in a certain direction. And then, all of a sudden, we start to put our own ideas and thoughts and timelines and earthly constrictions on the movements of God. So it's an important thing to consider. I think the greatest part of that passage is, is there anything too hard for the Lord? That is a good point. 25 years is almost as old as me. How long would you wait? Now let's remember that verse in Hebrews. It said that Abraham waited patiently. He really did. That's a long time to wait, 25 years. But in the midst of his waiting, he certainly had some pretty impatient moments. He did what we all have tendencies to do, and he kind of second-guessed God. He didn't necessarily doubt God's promise, but he thought perhaps he didn't quite get the whole deal, and so he kind of did some pretty stupid things to try to make the promise come true. He laughed at God as well. They both laughed at him, thinking that his promise was kind of ridiculous. And maybe when they're, you know, maybe they thought when we're in our 70s, yeah, I guess, but now we're in our 90s, this is crazy. But Abraham was certainly patient. He wasn't perfect, but you can't doubt his patience. And this is a great point to get from the passage so far. Be patient. Be patient. God's promises are eternal. Be patient. Trust God. Look to him. Follow his commands and his will. Put him first and he will stay true. He is truth. He can't not stay true. So be patient. But then Abraham's patience was tested again in a different and fairly strange way. Genesis 21.5 says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then we have this story happen in Genesis 22.1. Now, we don't really know how old Isaac was at this point, from what I can tell, uh, but he can talk, so we can, we can say maybe he's eight. Okay, we'll go with that for now. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is hectic. <laughs> This is crazy. I mean, we know the story. If you know the story, you know it's, it's okay. It's going to end well. But what did Abraham know? Abraham didn't know that. He waited, he waited 25 years. He had a kid when he was 100. He had eight years with the kid, give or take. And now God's told him he's going to have to kill his son. And not only that, it's a three-day hike to get there. That would be an intense three days. <laughs> didn't turn around the whole time, kept on going. The story keeps going. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. 
And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, uh, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you, are, that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Like I said, not totally clear how old Isaac is at this point, but he'd probably be eight. Okay? And God asked Abraham to sacrifice him. Now, God's not really into sacrifice, just in case you don't know. God's not into sacrifice, particularly not human sacrifice, particularly not child sacrifice. But Abraham, having probably learned his lesson from the whole 25 years of patience thing, he takes him at his word and he goes to sacrifice his son. This is, this is pretty intense. It's pretty shocking stuff. But if you ignore perhaps the most obvious stuff about it, like the fact that Abraham's freaking out about his son dying, you've got to remember this fact. God promised that he would have generations. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of a whole nation. And finally he gets a son. And then maybe eight years later, God says to kill that son. Wouldn't you be thinking, how's this going to work? What's going to happen here? I mean, you know, it's not like a 100-year-old Sarah or 108, whatever she is now. It's still barren as far as we know. Is, is up going to be up for having more kids. But of course, you know, God didn't have that in mind. He had other things in mind. I actually want to make a little bit of a side note at this point because I think that this is a pretty intense passage and because we know that God is going to provide a lamb, I think a lot of the time we don't grapple with that intensity of what Abraham went through for three days because we, we know what happens next. But the side point I want to make is a pretty intense one, and it's something that I've had some full-on discussions with my community group about. Um, and it's this idea. It's this idea that your kids can become your idols. At the project, we talk about idolatry, and we talk about the different things that could be idols in our lives. And the truth is, your kids can be idols. Anything can be an idol. An idol is just something that takes the place of God in your life something that you worship instead of worshipping him. And for some people, it's their children. They do anything for them. They sacrifice for them. They're fearful of losing them. They find their identity in them. They find their identity in what their kids can do. Some, you see this in an extreme way in that Toddlers and Tiara show. Has anyone seen that show? Where the mums go mental about making their little six-year-olds win these pageants. And you can just see how much identity these mums are deriving from the value of their kids. It's a complete idolatry thing. But this is an important... Just because you're not a toddler tiara mum or dad doesn't mean that you don't have an issue here. This is an important question to ask yourself. Have your children become idols in your life? Are there things that you feel God wants you to do and you haven't done them because you think it would be bad for your kids? 
The truth is that God knows what's good for your kids, not you. And if he asks you to do something, it's for the best. It's for the best for them, it's for the best for everything. But not only that, if he asks you to do something, you should just obey him. Jesus says, this is the intense verse that we've kind of thrown around in community group a bunch of times. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's an intense verse. Obviously, he's not talking about hate in that respect because Jesus has commanded us to love everyone. He's talking about in comparison. God is first. God is always first. God's not the sort of God who demands child sacrifices. He's not into killing people. He's into saving people and redeeming people and loving people, particularly children. He doesn't demand sacrificing their lives, but he does ask for sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice might involve your children in some way. So I encourage you to consider the order. The order is God first. God first, then your family. And that's become really difficult these days because everything can become about providing for your family. And not just providing enough for your family, enough for them to survive, which is a biblical mandate. You need to provide enough for your family. In fact, the New Testament puts not providing for the family in the realm of sin. In 1 Timothy, he says, if a man does not provide for his uh, relatives, particularly his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is a big deal to not provide for your family. But the problem is when this requirement to provide becomes about providing more than enough, for giving them the best of everything so that they can have experiences and opportunities and, ex- and experience and opportunity, everything that they want. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in principle. That's good in principle. But it's tough when you've got a kid who's great at sports and the team only plays on Sundays. What do you do? Do you go to church or do you do the sport? Or when you don't have the time to talk to people about Jesus or be generous or serve people or be hospitable or love people because you're so busy serving your kids by driving them around town all day for piano recitals and drama practices. I'm not saying that these things are bad, but I am saying that God has things that he wants all of us to do. If you don't have time to love people, if you don't have time to obey God because you're too busy serving your kids in this idolatrous sense, that's really messy. So, if you've got kids, it's worthwhile asking yourself the question. Are you worshipping them? Do you find your identity in them? Are you ignoring the requests or commands of God because of them? See, because it would appear Abraham didn't have that problem. (laughs) Abraham got on a donkey in the next morning and went three days and he was pretty much ready to go where God wanted him to go. He was obeying God first and God intervened. So, a little side note there, but it was something that really stuck out to me. What's my first point? My first point is this. Jesus is perfect. No one else. You're not perfect. Now, I know you know that. But then why do we beat ourselves up over the fact that we're not so much of the time? We all know we're not perfect. So why do we give ourselves such a hard time about that? Sometimes in a really self-righteous, ridiculous way. We're not perfect. You'll never be perfect in this life. Abraham wasn't perfect. He is a hero. He's a hero of the Old Testament. But he's not perfect. He messed up in some huge ways. 
Let's take a bit of time to discuss another hero of the Bible, King David. When Paul was preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, in Acts 13.22, he's discussing the history of the Israelites and he talks about David and he says this. He says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. God described David as a man after his heart. And Paul's referring to this verse in 1 Samuel, but now your kingdom shall not continue. This is Samuel talking to Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So David was described by God as a man after God's own heart. And that is a cool title to be given. I would love for God to say that of me. That would be amazing. So when looking into what that might mean, a commentator that I read said that it could be expressed by this psalm, Psalm uh, 16.2. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He was a man after God's own heart. So let's have a bit of a look at this guy. Abraham's a hero. David sounds like he's a real hero. Some of you would know the story already, uh, and there's a bit of reading to do, but bear with me because this is a good story. It's got everything. And if you know the story, you know it's got everything. So, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. As a side note, this is something we talk about at the 30 sometimes. The first line there is, when the kings go out to battle. And then we finish with, David remained at Jerusalem. A lot of the time... When men who are meant to be out doing things stay at home and sit around, they get up to no good. And we're going to see David get up to no good in a second. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Once again, that escalated really quickly. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. That's a scandal. That would be on all the internet sites all over the shop. That would be mental. So, what happens next? So, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. This is David in clean-up mode trying to work out what he's going to do. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lay with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is a good guy. He's serving his king well. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. David is resorting to any method he can here. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he still did not go down to his house. In the morning, 
David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Pretty much murder. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to, this, to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I'm not surprised. That's a pretty big way to mess up. There's a lot of planning involved in that sin. That's not just, oh, you know, accidental. It goes, gets worse and worse and worse, and there's plenty of planning going on. I mean, think about if something like that happened today. David's the king of a huge nation, okay? So, look, imagine that happened to Obama. We would never hear the end of it. That would be everywhere for years. I mean, we heard about Bill Clinton, and he didn't kill anyone. It's ridiculous. But listen, the truth is, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a great guy. He was brilliant. He did some amazing things. If you want to hear some awesome things about the character of David, go and read some stories in 1 Samuel about when he was pursued by Saul, who was the king. And Saul was trying to kill him, and then David was given all these chances to kill Saul. One time, David and his men are hiding in a cave, and Saul just walks in to go to the toilet. And they're all hiding in the dark, and they're right there, and his men are saying, this is your chance. This guy's trying to kill you. Kill him. Take a spear and kill him. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's not right. God made him the king, and I will not murder him like this. See, David was a great guy, but he was still a sinner. He still messed up. Abraham screwed up. David screwed up. And you guys screw up. So do I. Everyone does. See, it's okay that you sin. It's okay. And when I say okay, it doesn't mean that it's good doesn't mean it's excusable or permissible or allowed. It just means that it's understandable. I sin, you sin, that's why we need Jesus. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't need him. So what's my point? My point is don't give up. Don't throw in the towel just because you're a sinner. That's the whole point. <laughs> I mean, don't believe the lie that Satan tells you, well, you did it once, you may as well do it again. It's crazy that the very reason that we need Jesus, the fact that we sin, is often the reason that we reject Jesus because we don't think we're good enough. Of course you're not good enough. He's not in the business of looking for people that are good enough. Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. So don't give up just because you mess up sometimes. That is a lie. It's a lie. What do you do when you sin? You feel ashamed and embarrassed. You feel the weight of your sin. You feel condemnation. You think you're never going to get it right. You may as well just give up. They're all lies. 
You shouldn't feel that way. Jesus died so that you don't have to feel that way. Condemnation is from the devil. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Conviction leads us towards Jesus. Conviction leads us towards repentance and to sanctification. Condemnation leads us away from Jesus. And it's usually because for some stupid, weird reason, we have believed the lie that we have to be perfect. You don't. You just don't. You should try. You definitely should try. But you're not going to nail it. Jesus will sanctify you over time. You will get better. But you can't be perfect on your own, and you won't. It's just crazy that the world has adopted this idea that Christians are supposed to be perfect, and Christians believe it as well. And when we're not, like we know we're not, we destroy ourselves over it. If we were able to be, there would be no reason for Christ to have died. So don't throw in the towel. Stop beating yourself up. Go back to Christ and don't give up. Abraham was a hero. He was amazing. David was amazing. But like the title said, even heroes need help. Everyone does from Jesus. Point two. Jesus is perfect and he's better than Melchizedek. So we've talked about Melchizedek before, okay? And if you haven't been here, you'll have to go back to uh, a past year, I guess, of conversations about him. But um, we'll talk about it a little bit here. This is the little passage I want to talk about here. And it says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So like I said, we've spoken about Melchizedek before, so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here. But basically the writer of Hebrews often compares Jesus to the high priests and saying that sort of Jesus has become like the ultimate high priest. Of course, the Hebrews, to whom this letter was getting written to, uh, would have known what the high priest's job was and would also have understood the reference to the inner place behind the curtain. In the tent which held the, the Ark of the Covenant was the Holy of Holies. And ordinary people couldn't just walk around in here whenever they wanted. Ordinary people couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. That was the dwelling place of God. And sacrifices on behalf of the people were made by the high priests, the people who were most clean and were actually ordained to be the forerunners for the people. They entered in behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifices on behalf of all of the people. But Jesus' death on the cross paid the price, the ultimate price and sacrifice. He went behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies. And this was kind of the curtain that separated the normal people from God. It divided the people from God in a sense. And when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in half. Matthew 27:51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And that happened when Jesus died. The divider, the separator, the signifier of humanity's separation from God because of sin was destroyed. Jesus became the ultimate high priest and the separation was destroyed. He did what no one else could do. So the point here is don't give up. It's an encouragement. Jesus has done the work. Point three, Jesus is perfect. God cannot lie. 
This is great. I love this. This is the passage. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The main point here is that God sets up two unchangeable things. He makes a promise and then he makes an oath. And why are these things described as unchangeable? Well, because God can't lie. Now, listen to that again, because that's, that's a pretty big deal. That's a bigger deal than perhaps we understand. I'm telling you something that God can't do. God can't lie. And that might sound a bit strange. It's not that God doesn't lie or God won't lie, but God cannot lie. That's a bit weird. I was talking to Caitlin about it the other day, and she thought it sounded strange, and she kind of said, well, can't God do it every once? Can't do God do everything? Anything? And it does sound strange because of that. It sounds really weird. And it's a good point to think about. See, what about this question? If God can do everything, can God sin? No, God can't sin. God can't sin because God defines what sin is. And it's not just an arbitrary God says this is sin and this isn't sin. God's nature defines what sin is. God is holy and his holiness is in his nature. Now, God has done what we may, from a human perspective, consider to be some pretty full-on, dare I say, terrible things. Such as perhaps flooding the entire earth, except for one family. That's a pretty big deal. All the time that he destroyed Sodom and its population because of their sin. But these things, while they're terrifying, they're not sin. They're justice. God is holy and God is just. And God warned people and they did not heed the warning. It's not sin. So, can God lie? Well, God can't sin. And lying's a sin. So by that logic, you can say he can't. But I think it becomes troubling for us when we start to say things like God can't do this and that. Because, of course, we rightly believe in God to be all-powerful. But there's a good example that this guy Greg Kokel uses to answer this question. And he asks the question, can God make a square circle? What do you think? God can do anything, right? What the heck would a square circle look like? Circle, one line, no edges, well, no points. A square's got four points, four edges. Squares are squares and circles are circles. God can't make a square circle. Now, is it possible that in some crazy universe or perhaps in heaven, it's going to be a way for a square circle to exist? Yeah, I think that's possible because I have no idea what heaven is like. It makes no sense to me to consider eternity and all that sort of stuff. But within this realm, within the physical four-dimensional realm that we live in, a square circle cannot exist. Fair enough? Is this limiting God? No, it's not limiting God. God created these limits. God created this world and he created the limits that exist within this world. So, it might sound a bit weird. It might almost sound like a little bit blasphemous. But we shouldn't put limitations on God. But God puts these restrictions on himself. The Bible is the word of God and it says in the Bible that God cannot lie. So we can believe that. We can just believe it. He can't even lie about the fact that he can't lie. So it's fine. <laughs> And once again, the point here is be encouraged. Don't give up. 
going back to the first bit, the promises of God, the promises that God has made to you will happen. God cannot lie. Not only does he not lie, he cannot lie. He will not lie. It's impossible. So be encouraged. Don't give up. God cannot lie. So let's go over these points one more time to wrap up. Of course, you'll have noticed that all of the main points are exactly the same. Jesus is perfect. He cannot lie. He is the ultimate high priest who not only enters behind the curtain, but completely destroyed it so that we are no longer separated from God by our sin. And Jesus is perfect. No one else. Not Abraham, not David, not you, not me. We are called to try, and because of Jesus we can try. But everybody needs help. And because of our loving Father who condescended to come to earth to help us, that help is readily available for all of us. So be encouraged. Don't give up. When you sin, don't allow condemnation to take over. Go to Jesus. Jesus has obliterated condemnation. And Jesus will help you. He'll pick you up and he'll help you keep going. I'll pray to finish up. Jesus, thank you that you can't lie. Thank you that when we read your word, when we speak to you, the promises that you give us are eternal and unbreakable. Your character, your personality is so holy and just. And not only that, but you love us. You love us and you want the best for us. God, I ask that you give us faith and patience like Abraham to stick with you, to love you and to know that you love us, to put you first in all things. And God, I pray against the work of the enemy for everyone in this room that would put condemnation on them. I pray for the Holy Spirit to lead them in conviction so that when they sin, which is inevitable, because only you are perfect, God, but when we sin, God, I ask that you would pick us up, that you would show us the right way, that you would love us and that you would lead us and that you would sanctify us. Amen.